0: This is the relief of humility. We don't need to pretend. We don't need to posture. We can relax. Um, We don't need to be a big deal. We can just be honest. We can be ourselves.
1: Well, hey everyone, what is up? Welcome or welcome back to my channel. My name is Austin and this is Gospel Simplicity, a place where we seek to bring simplicity out of theological and historical complexity. As well, sometimes we just talk about the Christian life, how to grow in our faith, how to deepen our relationship with Christ. And we're talking more along those lines today. I'm joined by the guest who has been on this channel more than anyone else, which is Dr. Gavin Ortland. We're talking about his most recent book on humility. And I think you're really, Going to enjoy it. I know that I did. Before we jump into it, I want to say a real quick thank you to my patrons, subscribers, and merch buyers who make this channel possible. Especially to my patrons who give monthly. Thank you so much. If you want to support the channel, you can go to Patreon.com/slash simplicity to help the channel keep going and growing. With that said, here's the interview. Dr. Gavin Ortland has been on the channel six times. I am delighted to have him back. I'll put a more official bio. In the description, but for those of you that don't know him, he is a path pastor, author, YouTuber of the great channel Truth Unites. You should certainly check it out. And I'm delighted to have him back on the channel, Gavin. It's so good to have you here.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. It's fun to be back.
1: I want to talk about maybe some of the the challenges of, of writing this book, not just like promoting it, but specifically in your role as I don't know if you're comfortable with this title, but as a somewhat public figure, right? I mean, your YouTube channel is growing fast. You've written lots of books at this point. Um, and what, what's that challenge like? Because you want the, the book to do well and you, you want to also practice what you preach in it, right? Do you feel like mm. it's particularly difficult to, to live out this life of humility and, and to write meaningfully on it? As you grow and influence and in your audience.
0: Yeah, th- this will anticipate some of the things we'll say later as well, but this is one of those um, misconceptions that I think we sometimes have about humility, that if you're a humble person, then therefore you won't want your YouTube channel to grow or you won't want to have an influence or things like this. And it is so tricky because there are huge dangers in being on YouTube or seeking to have an influence where pride can so easily come in and I know we'll talk about that but it does it is helpful just to think you know it humility is not this sort of blanket restraint upon your life um, as we'll talk about later humility is not hiding your talents or failing to step forward and put forth your best foot and put forward your work so that helps me in the process but of course then it does challenge you and convict you over and over about how you go about that so that's kind of why i'm glad that i had a chance to work on the book just because i found it very sanctifying i think the, the thing that is most helpful is just going back to the gospel itself and just remembering that the message we're trying to promote is of a god who became a baby you know if we believe that the if if our fundamental belief system is that the one primal reality that everything else comes out of God uh, became a baby and then uh, was lived a humble life. You know, he, he didn't come as this grand king. He was a, a humble person, a carpenter, uh, lived in a relatively obscure life prior to his public ministry. And then he died the most shameful kind of death imaginable. I just find whatever we're thinking about humility, just going back to that over and over is helpful and it's really hard to take ourselves too seriously whenever we uh, remember that that's our fundamental belief that we're trying to proclaim to the world.
1: Yeah, I do love that idea of bringing it back to the message of the gospel, which is exactly where you go in the book, which is just a fantastic book and I highly recommend it to people. I think they'll really enjoy it. I enjoyed reading it and it was a great change of pace for me. I want to continue on that conversation of the idea of our misunderstandings when it comes to humility, because I think it is an often misunderstood thing. So beyond just the misunderstanding of if you are humble, you wouldn't want your YouTube channel to grow or to grow in influence. What are some of the other popular understandings of humility that you see that just don't quite capture a biblical picture of humility?
0: Hmm. Okay, so the the not wanting your YouTube channel to grow it could be a window into a larger category where we could say uh, humility is not the same as hiding. So if you are good at something, if you have a talent in some area of your life, humility is not the same as you know not telling anyone about that talent or not setting it forward to try to make it into a blessing to others. And then related to that, and this is something I love to emphasize from a pastoral standpoint, because a lot of people, a lot of us struggle with shame, We struggle with having too low of a self-image and somehow in our minds humility gets caught up with self-hatred or self-denial in an ungodly sense and so one of the things that's helpful to remember is that humility never negates our value as made in the image of god humility will never cause us to say that we don't matter or something like this so humility is not self-hatred humility is not hiding And this is where uh, it starts to get into where you can see how humility can be a nourishing and joyful thing. The way I love to define it is drawing from C.S. Lewis, and Tim Keller has picked up on this as well. And it's the basic idea that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Which uh, to explain that if someone doesn't catch that, it's kind of wordy there. It's not having a lower opinion of yourself, It's just thinking about yourself altogether less frequently and uh, just being less self preoccupied, not, you know, there's a great passage in in CS Lewis's screw tape letters where he talks about how God wants us to rejoice in our own talents just as freely as we rejoice in someone else's talents. So in the book, I talk about if you're a doctor on a team of doctors and you contribute 25% to the solution of a disease, and then your fellow doctor contributes this remaining 75 percent you're going to be three times as happy about his contribution but you'll still rejoice in your own contribution too it's this uh the absence of a self-referential framework for everything we're not filtering through everything through how it affects us we're fine with ourselves but we're seeing ourselves in the proper relation to the external world around us and I just have found that to be such a helpful way of a kind of a refreshing way to think about this topic.
1: Yeah, that really is a refreshing way of thinking about it, because I think there's a tendency to think of humility as this almost this sense of like self languishing, right? And how do I beat myself down? And when we couple that with a culture of shame, and rhetoric around that, it can actually be something that can be weaponized for people. And I think I've mm-hmm. seen that in churches as well, right? Where there's this sense of someone's thriving, they're, they're doing well, and they want to do that. And then people can tear them down to say, ah, you need to be more humble, and you need to make yourself really small and hide those gifts and talents, which is not what we're saying at all. And I really appreciate where you go there. And I think there's a lot of great pastoral nuance that you get into that we're going to talk about a little later on. But with this idea of kind of self-forgetfulness or the idea of thinking of yourself less, I think that's something that is fairly countercultural today. Many of us Mm. have become our own personal branding gurus, right? We've designed a, a culture around social media in which our whole like mental energy goes to how am I being perceived by others and how do I elevate that perception? Not exactly a great incubator for humility. So what do you see as some of our greatest challenges of cultivating humility?
0: yeah the 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 first thing that my mind goes to is the challenges with social media which is where i can kind of balance what i said earlier about it's not wrong to want your youtube channel to grow necessarily but it it can be you know and it often will have mixed motives in there so we we do need to be careful social media is really dangerous um you think of the beatitudes and these values of meekness, peacemaking, you know, so many beautiful things that characterize righteousness as Christ describes it. It does seem sometimes to me like social media is the total opposite value system. You know, it's not just that we don't obey the beatitudes on social media. It's that the values are the exact opposite. It's like, you know, we don't value meekness. We don't value peacemaking. The values of social media are often blessed are the outraged, blessed are the argumentative, and we could just go down and almost give the opposite of each of the Beatitudes. And it's, uh, it actually, I, I think about that every day as a father of five young children, just the way our culture is escalating in outrage and polarization and social media is an accelerant to that. And that worries me. And I think as followers of Christ, we have to think about how do we try to push against that. For me personally, it doesn't mean total disengagement from social media, but I have to be so careful. And I know we'll talk more about social media later, but this is just one of those big challenges where it it can really become narcissistic. And what I want to say to try to uh, from a pastoral standpoint to people who are on social media and may feel a temptation towards you know it can it can be it can feel really good and it can be so tempting to just do things that will give you this sense of applause you know so one of the things I want to encourage people to remember is we have to find our identity in the gospel and that means we have to f- feel okay about ourselves because of the love of Christ and it's just such a freeing thing to think you know even if i don't have any you know here's a wonderful prayer lord if my social media following was drained to zero help me to still be okay because i'm secure in your love and and what you've done for me on the cross to be that kind of person is freeing you know we're not dependent upon these Uh, devices that we have so but but social media is a real challenge we've got to keep finding our identity in the gospel one other thing i'll mention is that the outrage that's out there is so strong right now that um both political sides see the other side uh as so evil and so toxic that there can be a tendency and i even see this in many christian circles whether the progressive side or the conservative side to basically say you know the fruits of the spirit are just not the right thing for the moment. Uh, The threats against our culture are so dire that uh, it's not a time for humility. Humility, you know, where the challenges are too great for humility. And I I want to uh, lovingly, gently uh, oppose that way of thinking. I think, uh, to me, it's kind of, that way of thinking reminds me of Boromir in The Lord of the Rings, the character who wants to use the ring against the evil characters. We have to remember that we can't, cut corners, uh, virtue, godliness. Those are non-negotiables, no matter what we're facing, even if at the cost of our lives. Uh, integrity must remain in place. So that, but that's another danger. There's plenty of people now who will say gentleness, meekness, peacemaking, uh, you know, maybe that could work in 2010, but not in 2025. And I just think that we have to, uh, you know, the the people who who, you know, think of Paul, he spoke of perfect courtesy toward all men. Titus 3.2. Peter spoke of gentleness and respect in 1 Peter 3. Um, Gracious speech seasoned with salt. This is Colossians 4. These were written by apostles who themselves were being persecuted. The, The assumed context for such commandments is being slandered, and they're written in the context of a very hostile culture. So we should never think that when the culture gets hostile, we can leave off of humility, but there is that thinking out there sometimes.
1: This video is brought to you in part by Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is an organization of Christian counselors that exists to help you get the help you need. You can find them by going to faithfulcounseling.com slash gospelsimplicity and when you use that link, which you can find in the description down below, you will get 10% off your first month and they'll pair you up with a licensed mental health counselor in under 48 hours. Once you've been paired up with a counselor, you can reach them via instant message, phone call, video call, and more. I think you will really enjoy this, and I think it could be the first step on your journey to greater mental health. And mental health problems affect all of us, religious, non-religious, old, young, every demographic feels the weight of mental health. But there are resources available, and you don't need to go through this alone, which is why I encourage you to reach out to the amazing people at Faithful Counseling by using that link, faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity, and taking your first step towards healing and wholeness in your mental health. I think it's certainly out there, and I know we have this for later on in the outline, but I think it makes sense to follow this thread while we're here on social media. A couple thoughts come to mind of ideas that I want to pursue through this. One is, as we were talking before, that one of the great joys of doing what we do on YouTube is getting to connect with other people and like getting to connect with each other. And so I'll give a quick shout out to someone we both know, Keith Little, who once uh, put this out there that has always stick with me. And he said that the hot take is diametrically opposed to the virtue of prudence, which I just thought was so interesting and has really stuck with me as so often on social media, our instinct is to go for something that's reactive and something that's going to also cause other people to be reactive. It's what the platforms are really algorithmically engineered for, but it's often so unhelpful. Now on the idea of taking away gentleness or taking away these fruits of the spirit, part of my inkling of where some of that comes from, is that we believe that you reason with people who are wrong, right? When people are wrong, just intellectually, you can reason with them. You can have civil debate and you can talk back and forth. But what I think we see happening for so many people is that they don't just view the other side as wrong, but they view them as evil. And generally speaking, you don't reason with people who are evil. You take often... You take more protective measures if this feels like a place of life or death, and how do we tamp down that reactivity in our interactions with people on social media, whether that's debating politics, religion, or anything else how do we remain calm, be reasonable, and maybe even adopt an ironic tone to quote a certain Gavin Ortland
0: yeah that is uh, that is uh, such a challenge because. What you said about social media, that is so true that it's designed to trigger outrage. I mean, if people will watch the uh, documentary that's on Netflix, The Social Dilemma, it, it is one way that you can see how this is factoring in that basically we're the commodity. As, as soon as we can realize that social media is using us uh, in, in profound ways, many, often more than we are using it, it's not our tool. We're the tool. They're making money off of our attention and off of our distraction and off of our outrage. And it's just humbling to have to admit that, you know, I'm not smarter than the algorithms. Uh, it's I can't outthink the algorithms. They're going to get their hooks in me. They're going to get me addicted and outraged and angry about everything and so forth. I don't know how to solve this problem. I think about it every day. It's a societal. I, I actually really think this is a a, a dire uh, uh, threat uh, because polarization uh, it's it's dangerous. One thing we can do, just daily steps to try to have interactions with people of a different perspective, where we genuinely listen and maybe even model that as the church. Maybe we even model here's what it looks like to talk about political differences, theological differences, whatever, and to see and to try to humanize the other side. Uh, the fact is they are human beings on the other side. The fact is that these. Issues are complicated. Sincere, good people can disagree about deep substantive issues, and uh, just you know, the more we can try to model that and create spaces for that to counteract the echo chambers that we're pushed into, uh, that that's a really that's a really great thing to think about. What do those spaces look like that we can create that will break us out of our echo chambers and just get us talking and, and just seeing the humanity of each other, and even just articulating it as a value. Many people don't have any value anymore for listening to an opposing viewpoint. So even just inculcating this, that this should be a value we care about, is a good step to remind people listening and understanding is actually a a virtuous thing to do.
1: Yeah, and I think it's something that is in short supply, but because of that, when people experience someone who is willing to sit down with them and hear them out, even across their differences it can be a really powerful experience for people. We're not going to get into kind of the hot button topics or even just the kind of conversations that you might usually have on my channel, but I do think it's helpful to talk about this idea of how do we take this, and again, I know this is the constant question that you're asking yourself, and just as a shout out to you as just a person that's demonstrating this for those of you that aren't a patron for gavin's channel you'll sometimes see him there saying like i'm thinking about posting this does this capture what we're going for which i just love and so everyone should go become a patron of truth unites right Mm now Uh, i'll put the link in the description we'll put it in there but how do you have that um, idea of let's be gentle let's treat people as human beings and let's be kind while at the same time standing firm on things that you think are really important i know this is the the constant question around things that you're doing and i think it's the worry that people have where we started right of these issues are so important though and i can't stand down it's not that at least the impression i get is you're not asking people to not have an opinion but it's Mm -hmm. a certain way of holding it how do you toe that line and how do you do it well
0: this is the great question that I think about uh, over and over and return to regularly with my YouTube channel to try to get the balance right. I certainly veer off to this side sometimes, to this other side other times. Sometimes, you know, you're not firm enough. Other times you realize that I'm being a little bit too feisty or something like that. I think the goal is James 3.17, this wisdom that is from the Holy Spirit as opposed to from our flesh. It's trying to speak the truth, but also, but it it, it's you know that's the thing is I've known some people in my life who are such godly people, but they are willing to fight. They, uh, you know, on important issues, uh, you know, spiritual fighting, not not fighting from the flesh, not physical combat necessarily, but uh, you know, uh, a, a godly willingness to draw a line in the sand and stand up for what you believe in, and that is what is so tricky about the character of Christ. Uh, for us to aspire after is it involves this whole range of nuances that is so beautiful it does it it, on the one hand he says a a bruised reed i will not break you'll never find a more gentle person than christ on the other hand christ to the pharisees that's my one of my favorite things about the personality of christ he does not back off one inch to the pharisees he just lets them have it (laughs) you'd almost just think i mean he's he's way more bold than, than any of us could be. So that's a, just a tricky balance. How do we do it? As you said, I, I ask for feedback a lot. I, I consider myself accountable to my patrons. I have other people, Esther, my dad, uh, many other people, I'll just say, hey, you know, am I off base here? Because it's easy in the moment when you're annoyed or provoked by a, a, an ungodly attack against you to get pulled into it. So a one, one, one strategy, trying to be practical, is there is a time for disengagement. We have to remember there's verses like Titus 3.10, which talk about just basically of ignore someone. You know, it's crazy to think that the biblical advice could sometimes be to just not talk to somebody, but that actually is necessary because there's people where in talking to them, you'll be pulled into sin or or nothing good or productive can come from that. So that's something we sometimes have to do. Um, here's, but you know, there's so much to this, but I'll just say one guiding principle at the heart of it is genuine love you know so much of life comes back to this simple principle do i actually love people you know the person that is politically different from me on this issue or as is, uh, theologically um if i really actually love them if i wish well upon their soul that will constrain me in all kinds of ways uh, i will be praying for them i will be wishing well upon them i'll be apologizing i'll be saying you know what I don't even know if I need to apologize, but let me ask you, do I need to apologize? You know, I'll be moving toward them. So genuine love, there's no substitute for that.
1: That's a a great place to go. And I think something that's important to remember here, and I think people will be able to relate to this too, is not only is this way of engaging in social media where it's reactive, where it's... our overly argumentative for the sake of making yourself look good and feel right and justified, not only is it not productive, but it's also fairly miserable, I think, in the long term. It's, it's not something that produces genuine joy. It produces a short-term kind of dopamine hit of, ah, I feel justified, I feel right, let me rally. But ultimately, it, it causes disintegration, right? It, it pulls communities apart, it, it tears people down, and it's not what any of us really want, and what you point out about humility that I think is so interesting is that humility is intimately related to joy. It's not this begrudging thing. It's not this thing that we take up because we have to, but it's actually something that frees us into joy. You write this, we can think of humility like this, self-forgetfulness leading to joy. Can you unpack for me a bit this relationship between humility and joy?
0: Yeah, this is something that I have an intuition about more than an exhaustive understanding of. So I'm sort of struggling to articulate it even myself as I as I try to stumble towards it. But my feeling about humility is it's a very human virtue. It doesn't uh, put you above the normal dynamics of life. Like, for example, in, if you're an introvert and you you have social anxiety at a at a social event or something like this, Humility is the kind of virtue that's going to make a big difference in, in that for you. It's, it, it's going to help you in that circumstance. It won't take it away, but it's going to really help you function in that. If you struggle with self-discipline issues, um, humility is going to help you in the way you, you know, it's, it's very closely related to wisdom in the book of Proverbs. It's like engine in the oil. It just helps life go more smoothly. It'll help you with your relationships. Humility is is like oxygen. At one point in the book, I, I put it like this, that humility is to our soul what a good night's sleep is to our body. It's nourishing. It's comforting. I think in terms of why that is the case, again, not fully settled to how to articulate this, but the the anecdote that comes into my mind is the final scene in the great book, The Hobbit, uh, by Tolkien, the children's book, Before the Lord of the Rings. And uh, uh, without giving any any major plot spoilers, uh I will just describe what's happening in the final two sentences of the book. These two characters are uh, enjoying the fact that the, their um, the, their adventure is at an end and their objective was accomplished. And one of them basically says to the other one, Gandalf says to Bilbo, basically, to paraphrase, Bilbo, it's not about you. Uh, this this was never about you. There's a way bigger picture than you. You Yeah, you were involved in the fulfillment of these prophecies, but that's not for you. That's because there are things way bigger than you in your tiny little life. And uh, Bilbo's response to that is to say, thank goodness. And then they smoke their pipes. And that's the end of the book right there. And I love those words, thank goodness. This is the relief of humility. We don't need to pretend. We don't need to posture. We can relax um you know we don't need to be a big deal we can just be honest we can be ourselves and i think what humility does to put us toward that joy is it focuses us on the external world around us the world god has made his is so good and it's joyful to be focused on things other than yourself even if it's something simple like throwing a frisbee or enjoying a, a joke with your friend or enjoying a sunset or enjoying food or whatever it might be, that outward focus tends to lift up the heart into joy. And I think humility just helps leads us into that in different scenes of life over and over.
1: I love that. There's so many things I'd love to comment on there. One, I'm loving the amount of references to Lord of the Rings. It's actually one of the book series that's pulled out on top. You got the Hebrew Bible by Robert Alter and the Lord of the Rings. So take that for what you will. Uh, at least it's ordered in that direction. But um, I, I think that idea of bu- or of humility causing us to to look at other things and allowing us to recognize that like the world doesn't revolve around us is so important. I was having a conversation the other day with someone I've kind of mentored, and I was saying that, you know, you kind of want to be able to take two things and have them in mind at most times and be able to recognize the truth of both of them. One is that you are so loved by God that Christ died for you. And you're also pretty cosmically insignificant. (laughs) But the idea being that, The weight of the world isn't on all of our shoulders, and I think it can be a freeing thing when we realize that, like Bilbo, oh, like this wasn't just about me, and we can sit back and smoke our pipes. I want to double-click on one idea that you put in there, though, for just a little bit of follow-up, because I think it'll be relevant to a lot of people. You talked early on about humility and the person that might have social anxiety and how can that how that can be something that helps them humility and uh, through those situations. Can you explain that a bit more? And, you know, with all of the caveats in mind of social anxiety, anxiety in general is a big category. I'm not putting like a clinical diagnosis uh, weight on you, but I'm just curious the connection there, because I think that's interesting.
0: Yes. And just uh, as you said there, that this is always a wise caveat of whenever I talk about anxiety as a pastor uh, these days, because it's such a widespread epidemic kind of phenomenon, you want to give people encouragement to consider the full range of factors. And that includes our bodies. There's times to see a doctor, a counselor, psychologist, etc. But when it comes to sort of normal everyday anxiety that we have in social environments, This is something I don't struggle with anymore, really, at all, but I used to struggle with acutely when I was younger, and I've kind of worked through that to a large degree, I think, Um, but it really is something that humility is relevant for, and I think one of the main reasons is kind of in line with what we've already said. Part of that anxiety is uh, a a self awareness. And again, you don't want to put guilt on someone because we can't help but be aware of ourselves to some extent. And a lot of that social anxiety, of course, some anxiety is good. You know, so a little bit of it uh, is good, it's, but it can get too much. But one of the most powerful pieces of advice for people who struggle with social anxiety is to look for the person in the room that you can serve and bless. Maybe it's someone else who feels anxious and you can help them feel welcomed. Or maybe it's someone who doesn't have somebody who's listening to them very much and you can draw them out and ask them questions. Maybe there's somebody else you can serve in some other way, but what this does is it, it actually is relaxing for you because it puts your mind on, on someone else. It might be sort of an analog to when you're counseling someone who struggles with depression and you encourage them to engage in service. It's a healthy redirect to get your mind off of yourself. And again, this isn't the only solution, but it is one thing to really think about that is helpful. It is relaxing. If we say, I am here, as you put it, I'm very small. Christ died for me. But then right in there, stemming from that, it's my life is to serve others. And in that act of serving others, this is the great mystery at the heart of the universe. It's in giving that we receive. It's in love that we find joy that there's no joy like blessing another person. And so trying to put our hearts and minds upon that can be profoundly helpful as one way to try to reduce anxiety.
1: I love that. And it really rings true for me. I know that my wife struggles with social anxiety and it's been so helpful for her of something very similar to what you said of, you know, we're part of a, a pretty small church. And when it first started, it was it was difficult for her because it's a big enough group that it's you know a large group but it's not um so big that you can just hide people see you and so it would cause anxiety and then she joined a serving team where she's always serving coffee to people when they come in right pretty simple thing but it was so freeing to her because she doesn't have to think about herself of course a very small example but i think it's so powerful and i'll add to back on the idea of joy right of Oftentimes, even just beyond, say, social anxiety, in serving, we do find so much more joy than taking the things that we think are going to bring us joy. So we might think that, oh, I would really love to just stay in and binge Netflix all day. And, you know, that'll give a certain amount of joy. But you'll actually probably be helpful if more happier if you went out and helped that friend move. I was listening to a great podcast from a professor at Yale who teaches uh, the most popular class Yale has ever had about how to be happy that it's si- mm-hmm. the signups are always through the roof. And that was one of her insights that she teaches her students, like actually just service. It makes you happier. And so try it. And not that it's just at that level, but it is an incredible thing. And this paradox that's there, um, and allows us to, again, approach humility, approach service, not begrudgingly, but recognizing that, hey, maybe, you know, God hasn't just told us these things because he arbitrarily thinks they're good, but actually because they are good for us, that they help mm-hmm. us live that life that he has created us to live. I want to pivot a little bit to talk about one of the specific uh I don't know if use cases is the right word, but kind of context for humility that you draw out in your book. So you go through the book talking about the gospel and humility. Then you talk about humility among peers and leaders as a leader, different context. Then you go into some other things as well. One that I think is specifically difficult in our culture is humility towards leaders. And you talk about submission in that, which I think for some people has turned into something of a dirty word. Like they, they, maybe they cringe a little bit and maybe for Very legitimate reasons. Maybe it's a word that's been harmful for them, especially in the context of the church. But nevertheless, submission is a biblical concept. We don't just get to kind of write it off entirely. And so what does humble submission to leadership look like in a world where spiritual leadership has so often been abused?
0: Yeah, I want to start off by expressing sympathy for the person whose uh, submission was misused because uh, I've experienced that my wife and I have experienced that at a church. That is one of the most painful things when uh, there is spiritual abuse. Um, and so I do understand how people can feel like the very category of submission is kind of this toxic category, but um, there is a danger in, in reacting against that and going so far in the other direction, because there are, this is a biblical concept. And, you know, we even just think of submission to God first and foremost, That's a a biblical category, James chapter 4, submit yourselves to God, or it might be chapter 5. So I guess what I could say to try to help someone if if they really struggle with this topic is to try to, first of all, just give this very wide uh, and clear distinction right up front to say that all submission is ultimately toward God. And we submit to other lesser authorities as an act of submission to God, And therefore, we should never submit to something that is uh, contrary to the scriptures, that is contrary to the fruits of the spirit, that's asking us to do something that's displeasing to God. So for example, if you're a a part of a church and the church leadership is asking you to do something that's wrong, then in that circumstance, we have to uh, submit to God rather than this other authority. That's a basic kind of distinction, but it's just so pastorally and practically helpful to say as clearly as we can, we should never submit to abuse or to sin. That's not God's heart for us. And so that might just help give a little bit of breathing room for us to to think about this. I like to think of submission in terms of subtle ways first. You know, the big, big example would be, you know, an explicit case where the pastor of your church is like rebuking you, you know, and this would be like, wow, are you going to submit to their rebuke? But what I think the Holy Spirit would want to do in our hearts is such that we're going to be submitting so many times through subtle things that before it ever needs to get to that point, even something as simple as a quizzical look that somebody gives you, like you say something and you're not sure about it and somebody kind of looks at you funny, a humble heart will be already thinking. Hmm, Maybe I shouldn't have said that. I'm going to factor into my thinking. That's my friend whom I trust kind of looked at me funny when I said that. The littlest things can cause us to self-correct. You know, in other words, uh, I think submission starts with just a disposition of receptiveness to, to listen to others, to consider others. We, none of us see everything. We all see through our own prism of experiences and insights and so forth. So just listening to others, being open to pushback, being open to correction, And uh, what I'll just say to pastor those who've been uh, mistreated in the name of submission, because I do want to have a pastoral burden for that demographic, which is a huge. I mean, that's huge. Just thinking of some of the fallen ministers and other things we've seen. This is something I've been doing some research in recently. And as I look into the fall, I'm going to be doing some work in the realm of just apologetics kind of cultural apologetics right now. And how do we reach the culture right now? And I have a deep heart for the de-churched as well as for the unchurched, those who've left the church with wounds and hurts, huge demographic. And I can relate to people with those feelings. But what I would simply say, amidst so many other things that that could follow this, but the main thing to say is just encourage them that Christ is good and safe. And so um, what was missed, what was done in his name may have been wrong but, but he himself uh he himself was abused you know you, it's it's powerful to think of the cross in this lens and in this category but christ was a victim of abuse uh what what he went through was was the pinnacle uh experience of that vulnerability and helplessness that makes abuse so traumatizing for us and so i want to encourage people To whatever else they need to do. And it's fine to set boundaries and it's fine to not submit to that particular place or person over there that may have hurt us. It's fine to have boundaries and accountability. We need that. But Christ himself, we should never run away from Christ. I see a lot of people, they're hurt by the church and so they're leaving. And I want to encourage them that uh, don't run from Christ, run to him. He is the safest and he, he, I, I really believe this. He has a special place in his heart for victims, for the marginalized, for the for the rejected, for the outcast, uh, for the person that this world just discards and says, you're no good. Christ is drawn to that person. So I just want to encourage people who, uh, for whom this topic is especially poignant and painful to remember that uh, Christ is safe and good and we should you know, whatever boundaries we have, don't ever run away from him, run to him. You'll find him to be the best friend you could possibly imagine in the context of suffering.
1: I love that so much. That is such a a powerful idea. And as someone who has likewise experienced the abuse of spiritual leadership, um, it's something that rings very true to me. And I just appreciate those words there. You pivot in the end of your book to talking about practical tools for humility or key practices you offer 10 i'm not going to ask you to go through all 10 um people can buy the book if they want all 10 no but i would love to know just a couple maybe three tools that you share with the audience to begin implementing to cultivate greater humility
0: yeah i mentioned some really practical things these come from the chapter that's just very practical just i've you know, ch- the first two chapters i lay a gospel foundation and then i'm just saying here's some specifics you can try to put to practice in your life uh, one of them is intentional gratitude this is something I, i've done a video on i've talked about it's way more powerful than i realized i started doing this several years ago where when i'm driving or swimming the two times, because I swim in a pool here, and then whenever I'm driving, I can't be distracted by anything, so I'll just start counting my blessings and articulating thanks to God for his blessings in my life, and the difference it made emotionally. I mean, it's just amazing. Uh, we, we, the glass is always half empty and half full, you know, metaphorically speaking, and it's so easy to focus on the half empty. What gratitude does, intentional gratitude, it just focuses your mind and heart on the on, uh, the the glass being half full all these positive things in your life i think in the book i use the metaphor imagine that you're at a dinner party with five uh celebrities that are like your favorite actors favorite musicians okay imagine you just got to go to dinner with like the five famous people that you are most interested in getting to know think how privileged you'd feel Think how honored you'd feel just to get to hang out with these people and it's like, what am I even doing here? I just get to talk. I get to be here. I get to talk to these people. I get to get to know their personalities. This is so cool. Well, uh, you know, what humility could do for us and intentional gratitude can do for us is to create something like that experience with every person we meet, with every circumstance we're in. You know, they don't have to be celebrities to be amazing people that we're privileged to be around. Uh, The fact is that everyone is made in God's image. Every tree is a miracle that God has created. Every star is a miracle that God created. You know, every corner of this world is a wonder. And it's such a joyful thing to walk into any circumstance you're in and think, I'm so grateful. How blessed am I that I get to be here? And I, I know that can seem... You know, it might see, even seem extreme, but boy, if you start to practice that and make that a habit, it's amazing how it changes your life. It changed my life way more than I expected. A second one I'll say is um, not running away from situations that are vulnerable. You know, so I'll, I'll be vulnerable myself and say an example for this for me as a parent is when my kids are disobeying me in public. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this is one of those, you know, people will understand who've been through this, uh, parents, it's, it's humbling. You know, if there's a kind of vulnerability and kind of like, oh, man, this is challenging, you know, um, because you're having to do something in front of other people and, and try to, uh, navigate, especially when you're the pastor of the church and it's at church, <laughs> this can be very challenging. So there's something humbling about not hiding from those kind of situations. We talked about if you're an introvert going to a, a social event, um, you know, those doing something that you're not very good at. It's easy to just avoid situations that feel vulnerable to you, but I think it's wonderful to be able to say, you know, this is hard for me or this is vulnerable or this is not easy, but I'm just gonna do it anyway and that's okay, I don't need to always be at my best. And I think over time, if you cultivate the habit of embracing the vulnerable moments of life, it's kind of nourishing for you and it kind of helps keep things in stride. Last thing I'll mention is just a very practical, simple one that's a lot of fun. Uh, look at the stars. Study the stars. Uh, go out at night. Uh, I live in Ojai, California, where there's very little air pollution, and we got a trampoline for our kids this past summer. And so many evenings I would go out, and after they get down, I would just take 15 minutes, but sometimes it stretched into a full hour to just look at the stars and kind of process my day and slow down because what I found is I'm spending so much time on my phone, on my computer. And something about staring at a screen is not healthy when it's like all you're doing. And there's something about just the beauty of it, but also just that wonderful feeling of remembering how small you are, which is, again, a happy feeling in some ways. And just seeing, um, you know, it's an interesting thing to think about is how much is this simple, you know, for the ancients, you'd see the stars every night, you'd sleep under them. It's just this reminder every night that we're tiny External reality is huge when we're staring at our screens all the time. It's almost the opposite It makes the world seem so small because I can talk to someone across the world, you know So just that that discipline of and and I suppose the stars you could branch that out to just nature in general but uh, just simple things like that uh, Can remind us of how big external reality is and it seems like a small thing But little things like that can make a difference
1: I love it. It really does have this decentering power that it it takes you to the periphery when you see that there is just so much i also love the idea of doing something that makes you vulnerable because again this idea of humility it it forces you to have this more maybe honest self-perception this you know we're so tempted to curate how we present ourselves to the world that we only present the the best of ourselves and, and the most polished sides But doing something that's vulnerable, doing something that maybe you're not great at, it allows you to just be rather than have to attain to this certain level. And I think that's very, very helpful for people. Gavin, this has been a a joy as always. And something that really struck me. Was that, you know, despite the fact that you've been on the channel six times, we've never done the final four. So today we have to do the final four questions. Really excited to do this for you uh, or do this with you. But before, I do just want to say again to people, I'm I'm not just saying this because I enjoy Gavin. Gavin hasn't paid me to do this, but it really is a great book. I would encourage you to check out uh, his book, Humility, The Joy of Self-Forgetfulness. You'll find it in the description down below. And do check out the rest of the series. Um, the, the series editor, Michael Reeves, I'm always uh, plugging his book, Delighting in the Trinity, and I'm excited mm. to check out uh, what else comes out in this. But final four questions, what has been the most fruitful habit or spiritual discipline in your life? Mm.
0: And these are these are rapid fire questions, right? Mm-hmm. So I'll try to keep it up on the briefer side. Um, I would say the simple practice of believing in my heart That despite my failures and sins, I am truly and 100% loved by Christ through the gospel. And applying that in the the failures and painful moments of life is incredibly fruitful.
1: I love it. Outside the Bible, what has been the most impactful book on your life?
0: Well, as much as I love quoting C.S. Lewis, uh, people will not be too shocked when I say the answer is Anselm. Anselm's Proslogion. Love it for so many reasons, but the 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 vision of heaven as a world of love, in which the joy of each saint and angel uh, multiplies every other saint and angel's joy because you're obeying the golden rule perfectly. Incredible! People should check it out. Proslogian chapters twenty four and twenty five.
1: We'll have to make that interview number seven, eight, twelve, whatever <laughs> to talk about Anselm sometime. You're having coffee with your undergrad or early grad school self. You've gotten more than your fair share of degrees. What's one piece of advice you give him for his future in theology or as a pastor?
0: Mm. For theology, it would be read the classics. Uh, Don't be shy to dive into the ancient texts, uh, any of them, and focus on the ones you enjoy and um, just immerse yourself in reading old books rather than new books. That would be the single piece of advice I I tend to give everybody. And I think it's both a joyful task and a helpful task as a pastor. I would say think long-term and uh, be more gentle than you think you need to be in every circumstance you face.
1: This violates the nature of the final four to ask a follow-up question, but I'm Mm going to add on a third category because we've talked so much about social media today. If you Mm -hmm. could talk to yourself uh, back when you started Truth Unites, What's one piece of advice you'd give yourself?
0: Mm. This, is a, this, is a, this is an interesting one, yeah. Um, I think I would give, I would say it's easier than you expect to just succeed and for it to roll forward. Once you get the train moving, it just moves down the tracks. I would say just enjoy it and don't overthink it. I think I went into it with such a fear and trepidation about how toxic social media can be as we've talked about. And so I went into it with my guardrails, with, with, my, uh, with a lot of guards up, just worrying, is this going to become a toxic thing in my life? And what I've discovered is there, you have to think about that, but it, there's a lot of positives and it's amazing how you can make so many great friends. You can uh, meet people, you can, ha- I've learned so much. My, my entire academic interests have been altered because of being on YouTube. Because I've been exposed to different ideas and different ways of thinking, and that's been such a great thing. So I think I would just say, um, you know, relax and enjoy it, um, and just to not overthink the, the dangers.
1: That's wonderful. Last question: This channel is called Gospel Simplicity, and it's often pointed out that the channel can be a bit on the complex side. So I like to end here in one sentence: What is the gospel? Hmm.
0: I love this question. The gospel is a uh, message of good news about what God has done. The God who created the whole world and against whom we have sinned, which is the cause of all the brokenness and misery we see, has come in the person of Jesus Christ to redeem and fix all things. And our point of access to that is through faith and repentance. That means turning away from sin and rebelling against God and putting our full trust, which means surrendering our entire life unto Christ. And in that, there is forgiveness beyond your wildest dreams, joy, eternal life, fellowship with God himself.
1: Wonderful. Gavin, thank you so much for joining me on the channel yet again. And thanks to all of you who watch this video sometime in the future. I don't take your time lightly. I'll close, as I always do, by saying until next time, be on the lookout for more videos. But as always, go out and love God and love others, because truly, above all else, that will change the world.